One of the great moments that stands out in history is General Douglas MacArthur's return to the Philippines. He had actually been leading about 90,000. He left about 90,000 Allied forces, Americans, allies, and Filipino freedom fighters in March of 1942. They had been resisting uh, the Japanese takeover of the Philippine Islands, and they were unable to stand against Japan. By March of 1942, General Douglas MacArthur, who was in charge of the Pacific Theater of the World War II, received direct and non-negotiable orders from President Roosevelt that he was, by submarine, to be taken out in the night away from the Philippine Islands before he was at risk of a general of his stature being captured by the Japanese. So he had his wife and his son with him even at the time he was put on a submarine, an American submarine, and headed out. Um, leaving behind, as I said, some 90,000 Allied forces, Americans' Allied forces, and Filipino freedom fighters. It was Douglas MacArthur's intent to rally forces, realign his navy, and return. As it turned out, those resources were more difficult to assemble than he had anticipated, and it was some two years later. When he realized that his time was delayed, he made a radio speech directly to the people of the Philippine Islands. And there, as when he left, he said in the radio speech, I shall return. Those words are well-known words, as Douglas MacArthur is a well-known general of that era. It actually ended up being October of 1944 before Douglas MacArthur was able to return some two years later. In the meantime, horrible things had taken place at the hands of the Japanese, and of the 90,000 that Douglas MacArthur left behind, only 30,000 were still alive. That was when that incredible march on Bataan took place, Corregidor and those things. In March, they arrived in October by March then of, uh, excuse me, by June then of the next spring, they finally had retained and regained control to the degree that the conflict was basically in hand on the Philippine Islands. Douglas MacArthur said at that time in a speech, I'm a little late, but we finally came. One thing our Lord Jesus will not say is that I'm a little late. Our Lord did say that he would return. You'll recall in Acts chapter 1 that when he, some 40 days after his resurrection, with his disciples gazing up into heaven, ascended into heaven, the angels told the disciples, why are you look up, looking up into heaven so intently? Remember, and, and the angels told the disciples, this same Jesus who is taken up from you will come again. Many people have wondered about that return. It feels like he's delayed. It hasn't happened yet. And as we turn to Matthew chapter 24, we are continuing to, with interest, listen to our Lord teach about what are the signs of his coming and the end of the age. There are now four disciples specifically gathered around Jesus. I used some make-believe imagery last week. Um, it's not in the Bible, you know, that they are there with their elbows on their knees eating beef jerky. Uh, a couple people commented to me about that. Um, uh, but there they are on the Mount of Olives, and they've asked our Lord, would you please tell us what are the signs of your return and the end of the age? These four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, together are, as I picture it, leaning in, and our Lord has taken the first 14 verses of the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 1 through 14, and he has been describing to them the birth pains. That's the famines and wars and rumors of war and, and the earthquakes and pestilences and the martyrdom of believers. And we have seen all through history that these things have been happening. And I've said that what I see in this passage is, is in a sense a layered fulfillment of prophecy. You have a more immediate fulfillment on some of these aspects, some that were fulfilled in 70 AD when 
The Romans overthrew Jerusalem. Luke references that in Luke 21. The city surrounded by soldiers, put to the edge of the sword, trodden underfoot, and then scattered to the othermost parts of the earth. And that was the end of Israel as it was known until 1948. So our Lord is teaching, and some of these things are going to be fulfilled throughout the church age. In the book of Acts, we experience them now. There are, there are uh, ever-increasing amounts of earthquakes. Even in our world of plenty, there's famine. Imagine that there's famine in this world today and starvation. Once again this week, earthquake in Mexico made the headlines and tragic to watch the news. And, and the birth pains is such a good illustration. And the idea here is that this is something that is going to increase. It is something that is increasing in measure until the coming of the Lord. And he used that, this, this groaning of the earth under sin and, and the wars and rumors of war. And through history, we've seen the slaughter of believers. We've seen uh, antichrists rise up. We've seen false, pri- false prophets rise up and mislead and and deceive. And these things happen from this time on throughout the centuries. And yet they will accelerate and increase until the time of the coming of the Lord. And let me remind you in this passage that so far in our teaching, Christ has not returned. He's talking about the fact that there will be these signs, but I have not yet returned. Last week then, we, we made it to verse 15 where we have this This key event, and if you have your notes in front of you, you'll find it helpful. We just got the letter A in our sermon last week, this unmistakable event. In verse 15, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, then let the reader understand something is going to happen. The idea here is clearly communicated by Matthew that the disciples understood that Daniel had spoken about this abomination of desolation, that that's a trigger event. So he spent the first 14 verses talking about the birth pains, but he says, but don't be deceived, I haven't come yet. Then he says, but now when you see the abomination of desolation, and we took some time last week to try to understand that what it appears that that is, is an event that happens halfway through the 70th week of Daniel. That seven-year period, that last week of years that that is prophesied in the book of Daniel, seven-year period that is yet future that we call the tribulation period. Even people who don't know their Bibles have heard about the Antichrist and, and the beast. That's really synonymous for the same person. The Mark 666, that's all going to happen in the tribulation. And when our Lord talks in verse 15 about the abomination of desolation, we have to ask ourselves, what is that? So that we can know that that is a marker, that's a time marker that the disciples were to key in on, that after that sometime, things are going to happen and then the Lord will return. And when we went to Daniel, and if you reflect in your notes, we noted that in chapter 9 and chapter 12, it was clear that there was markings there, there were indicators there that talked about a three and a half year period. So when we consider that 70th week of Daniel or that seven year tribulation period, Daniel talked in chapter 9 and chapter 12 about three and a half years into it that there would be then this abomination of desolation. Historians and Bible students alike believe that what Daniel talked about in chapter 11, if you look in your notes under A1B, that Daniel talked about in chapter 11, we noted this last week, that a literal fulfillment of this abomination of desolation, which would have been known in the minds of the disciples in their history of Israel, in 165 A.D., B.C., excuse me, 165 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes invaded Jerusalem, went into the Holy of Holy Areas, went into their temple, went to the altar, slaughtered a pig, let the blood run down, made the priests of Israel eat some of it, touch the blood. If they refused, they were put to the sword. And then it is thought that he erected a statue of Zeus and forced these Israelite priests to worship Zeus. This is the most horrible thing that they could imagine, and it is defined and designated by Daniel as the abomination of desolation. 
So when you put Daniel 9 and 12 together with chapter 11, it appears that when you put other prophetic passages together, that this seven-year period is marked by a three-and-a-half-year halfway momentous event when, like Epiphanes, the Antichrist will rise up, the temple will have been rebuilt, and the Antichrist is going to do some act that is considered an abomination of desolation. In the mind of a Jew or an Israelite, it would be the desecration of the altar. Some Bible students believe that the Antichrist will literally slaughter a pig on the altar, on the re-erected altar in the re-erected temple in Jerusalem. We don't know for sure what will happen. What we do know for sure is that Antichrist, though, is going to set up a statue and he's going to force, through the assistance of his right-hand man, the false prophet of the day of, of the time of the of, of the tribulation, he is going to erect an image of himself. So when you study out the scripture, uh, you can understand it this way: the indicators are that the globe. At this time, in the, in the last days, Christ's second coming hasn't come yet, but the, the tribulation in the beginning part of this 70th week of Daniel and this seven-year tribulation period, in the beginning part of it, there's indicators that the globe will be broken down into ten regions. There will be a leader in charge of each of those ten zones, out of which one will surface... And he will be the Antichrist and he will establish himself early on in this tribulation period by making peace with Israel and all the nations around him. At the three and a half year period, he's going to violate that treaty and he's going to perform this act that Jesus, I think, is referencing that is foreshadowed by Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and he is a type of the Antichrist and he's going to commit this desecrating act that is going to violate the treaties, that is going to create all kinds of difficulty, and the Antichrist is going to flip, and he's no longer going to be a peacemaker, but he's going to become a butcher. And it's going to be a very, very difficult time. Now let me say something before we read our text yet. Remember in Matthew 24, this is largely directed at Israel and Jewish people, not the church. I'll, I'll mark that out when we come. Secondly, don't be confused. What we're talking about here is our Lord's answer to the disciples. What are the signs of the end of the age and your coming? This passage, Matthew 24 and 25, are talking about the second coming of Christ. In messages future, I will give, I'll even give a drawing and we're going to talk in more detail. Do not be confused. Okay, the second coming is not to be confused with what we call the rapture of the church. The Apostle Paul talks in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, about, a, about an event. I believe it is a literal event. The word rapture is not in our Bible. It's a Latin phrase that means snatching away because the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4 this this moment-like event where the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the air. That's the catching up, the catching away or snatching away idea of the rapturia, the rapture. And I believe that believers in the Lord Christ who are part of his church will not be present to go into this 70th week of Daniel, will be raptured out before, and in fact, it's most likely that that rapture event is a trigger event for this launch of the seven-year period. So make that clear in your mind. However, the gospel will go forward in the 70th week of Daniel, and people will be saved, and there will be Christ followers, and they're going to be martyred, and Israel's going to be saved, and Gentiles are going to be saved. So there will be believers, and there's martyrdom of believers in this seven-year period. Particularly, once the abomination of desolation takes place, that last three-and-a-half-year period will be a horrible period. And that's what really our topic is today, the Great Tribulation. Introducing that, what we're trying to do is we're trying to just follow along with Peter, James, John, and Andrew as our Lord explains to them what are the events to watch for. Now let's read our text. And I'm going to comment while we read once 
why I believe this is particularly Jewish as Matthew wrote it. Verse 15, our text for today, through verse 28. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. You see, it appears in some of this, and we talked about it last week in Luke 21, that in AD 70, when kind of a first layer of this was fulfilled in somewhat of a literal fashion where Rome comes in, trods Israel underfoot, tears down the temple to the degree, as Jesus prophesied, that it would happen right at the end of chapter 23 of Matthew here, that not one stone would be left upon another. They don't even know today where the foundation of the actual temple was. It was so torn apart. They say by the time Rome got done salting the fields, destroying all of the city of Jerusalem and scattering the Jews, putting them to the sword, spreading them out around the world, trading them into slavery, into Egypt, and then out from there under the uttermost parts of the world. Israel was scattered in 70 AD, has never come back until 1948. And Jesus prophesied that, and part of that was fulfilled in 70 AD. And part of this message evidently was to be taken, literally, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And in fact, history bears out that many of the Christ followers did get out of Jerusalem ahead of the destruction in A.D. 70. And they spread out to other parts of the world. And they fled. And he said, if you're up on a ladder working on the side of your house, get off the ladder before they come and run. Don't even go in the house and get your coat. If you're out in the fields working, don't go home and get your jacket. Don't get your stuff. Run because the soldiers are coming And woe unto women who are pregnant. And if it's winter, and then here it says, and pray that it won't be on Sabbath. Well, who could care less about the Sabbath than this room full of people right here? Think about it. Now, the Sabbath is important. Don't get me wrong. But of the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus that God gave Moses, we really worry about nine of them, don't we? But the tenth one, we just don't worry about. How come? Well, because, and it's a beautiful truth. Part of it is explained in Hebrews Christ became our Sabbath rest. We no longer had to have a day of the week where we had to keep the law and keep this day. The Sabbath is very much a Jewish practice. In the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles alike who follow after Christ, who've been to the cross and are under the shed blood of Christ, and this mystery age, the church, we don't care about the Sabbath. In fact, yesterday would have been the seventh day. It would have been the Sabbath We didn't rest. We worked harder on Saturday or played harder. And the people at the 8 o'clock service, not you all, not you all, the 8 o'clock people, you know why they come to 8 o'clock. Because they have all kinds of stuff they want to do for themselves on Sunday. We know that. You know, that's just what that's all about. But the spiritual people are at 11 o'clock. Given the prime time of the day to the worship of the Lord. Those 8 o'clock people are already out in their boats and... And soccer fields and all that, you know, you know that's true too. (laughs) Well, sort of, not really. But do you see what I mean? This is written to Jews. It's there. There's a ramification there. There's an implication. Is the word better that it's Jewish in nature? And in 70 AD, do this. Don't don't say. And that is reflected in a longer term prophecy. I believe that the Antichrist, who will be the personification of Antiochus Epiphanes, in, 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 a, in a symbolic way, when he implements his destruction and when the nations of the world gather on Israel, run again. It's going to be a horrible time. Let's finish reading our text now. Verse 21, for then there will be a great tribulation. Now here's the disciples, okay? There they are, listening closely to Jesus. They've got in their mind Daniel's abomination of desolation. Now verse 21. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, it's not possible, but if possible, even the elect, the born-again believers in Christ. Verse 25, see, I have told you beforehand. Say, Mark down that I've told you, don't go running after all these other Christs. What's his point? His point is, you haven't seen the abomination of desolation yet, and you haven't seen the great tribulation yet. When you see those things, then you better pay attention. But until then, it's birth pains. And there's going to be many antichrists and many false prophets and many false Christs. Verse 26, so... If they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. We're not going to get to this verse today, but what could be more obvious than lightning? In other words, he's telling them, you will know when this is going to happen. And furthermore, he says a proverb now in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather, there will be signs. All right, that's the end of our text for today. If you glance down at our notes then, we were looking last week and we just stopped after letter A and we didn't even finish it and I'd like to finish it today. And we're going to actually get to letter B today. So when, we won't get any farther, but that's where we're going to get. So when you see the abomination of desolation, look at your notes again or think with me if, you're not, if you don't care for the notes. This unmistakable event that the disciples knew that Daniel spoke about is what they were to pay attention to. And it was predicted by Daniel. We've talked about that. It was detailed by Luke. And now to finish this out, notice that it was referenced by Paul. We're we're talking about the abomination of desolation. And let me continue to reinforce with you that I think that this is some event that happens in the temple that desecrates their place of worship. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, will you turn there with me please, talks about the the coming of the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist is another name for him, man of lawlessness. What was happening in the minds of the believers at Thessalonica was Paul had come and taught them, he had taught them about the coming of the Lord. He taught them about the rapture too in 1 Thessalonians 4. He also taught them about the second coming of Christ in 1 Thessalonians 5. He writes a second letter, 2 Thessalonians, because they got afraid, you'll see in this passage, somebody wrote them a letter that appeared to be apostolic and said the Lord's return had already happened. And so he wrote 2 Thessalonians to calm them down and say, no, it didn't happen. And he's going to say, Partly because the abomination of desolation didn't happen yet. So don't worry about it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's just begin with verse 1. Stay with me, you'll track with this. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there it is, and our being gathered to Him, together to Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by spirit or spoken word, or here it is, or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So they got shaken because they thought the day of the Lord had come and they missed it. Somehow they missed the Lord's return. It sounds like our Lord a little bit here too. Don't be quickly shaken. Don't be upset. In Matthew 24, the Lord repeated that. Stay calm. Don't get upset. Don't be anxious. He goes on to say, just like our Lord did in Matthew 24, in verse 3, Let no one deceive you in any way. Don't be deceived, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now look here. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, that son of perdition or destruction, that man of sin or lawlessness will be revealed, that's the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship So that, now notice, here it is, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. I personally believe that Paul is referencing the abomination of desolation there. It doesn't say it, don't get your head cut off for this, but doesn't it appear that that is a marking of when he's telling the Thessalonian believers 
Somebody wrote you a letter and said the Lord's coming has already happened, but no, it hasn't because the man of lawlessness has not set up a worship system for himself yet in the temple of God. And that's the abomination of desolation. And the Antichrist is going to make a statue not of Zeus, but of himself. I don't know if he's going to literally slaughter a pig on the altar. He might be just like him. I had a Bible college professor, Dr. Earl Parvin. He's still living. Wonderful man, still sharp. When a year ago or so, when uh, West Virginia had its floods, he was down there mucking out cabins at age 90, down in up the hollers, serving the people of southern West Virginia. He served many years at Appalachian Bible College. And he would tell them, men and women, I'm telling you, the Antichrist is going to be a Muslim. That's what he would say. That that's going to be the religion that will unite the world. The reason he would say it that way um, is because through the generations here of my dad's generation into my early years, it was always taught that the Antichrist would be the Pope. And that was a common teaching in our evangelical and fundamental Bible churches. And so Earl Parvin was kind of radical all the time, and so he came up that it was going to be a Muslim. Well, what do you think? I don't know. I don't know. And so here we are, this idea that he's going to set up a statue of himself, and that is going to be some kind of a thing that is going to deceive the people. So it was a marking point for the Thessalonian believers. Now let's go to, let's go to the book of Revelation where John talks in Revelation 13. And will you turn there with me to Revelation 13? And, and we're, what we're doing here is we are, we are looking at some verses that it, it, it looks like, based upon the prophecies of Daniel... The literal fulfillment in Luke, reflected in Paul's writing to the Thessalonian believers, and now described by John, described by John in Revelation 13, that the abomination of desolation has to do with the Antichrist, it has to do with three and a half years. We're going to get that again here. Notice what it says in Revelation chapter 13. In the book of Daniel, he talked about... The three and a half years, he talked about the 1,260 days and 1,290 days. Um, And now in Revelation 13, John is writing and he's describing what God is showing him in a vision. And in verse 5 it says, And the beast, that's another name for the Antichrist, I believe, and the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Look what it says. It, the beast, verse 6 of Revelation 13, opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling or his temple, that is, those who dwell in heaven. So the idea is that there is a blasphemous event. I think that John is talking about the abomination of desolation there. 42, 42 months into it. 42 months into it, halfway through, this Antiochus Epiphanes kind of moment is going to happen. And there it is. And what he's talking about here is this idea of that he will be allowed to exercise authority for 42 and a half months. And you say, Pastor Van, how is it that somebody could become so powerful in such a short time? Well, let me just tell you something I've been thinking about. So this was a little bit problematic. In earlier years, when Bible teachers would teach about Bible prophecy and how the unfolding of Antichrist would be revealed and how these things would take place... One of the issues that would be thought about is, how does somebody become so powerful so quickly? Now, when you study some of the prophetic passages, what you'll see, and we might bump into this eventually, but what you'll see is that in this time of the 70th week of Daniel, this final seven years on the earth here, um, the church isn't here. This is, God is turning his attention again to the Jewish people particularly, but Gentiles will be saved as well. That the globe is going to be broken down into ten spheres. Now, sphere is not a good word. Regions. The sphere of the globe will be broken down into ten regions. Of these ten regions, there will be 
ahead political leader. Out of the ten, in the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, describe it as a little horn. A little horn is going to rise up and take over the other leaders. We believe that's the Antichrist. So there will be, now stop and think about this. If you're going to have a one world government, what do you have to have take place? You have to have a breakdown, for example, of nationalism, don't you? You cannot have gung-ho people fired up about Poland, fired up about Zimbabwe, fired up about South Africa, fired up about the United States, and become a one-world global environment. It's not going to happen. So what do we see happening during the birth pain time? We see happening, even in our era, we see a breakdown in nationalism, don't we? We see a melding of the world. We see, well, we hear talk that I never heard of when I was in elementary school, and I'm not that old. You hear, you talk about the global environment. George H.W. Bush was one of the first presidents to start talking about the new world order publicly. And, and so it's just been the last 25 years that you'll see a breakdown in national. What else do you have to have? You have to have a breakdown in, in monetary systems, don't you? And you have to have a movement towards, towards a global economy. That's a familiar term for all of us. I you know, hear that stuff when I was a kid. And no one ever thought about the fact that we would maybe not use American dollars or another country would use euros instead of whatever they used over there, pounds, whatever. And so what I'm telling you is that you see this, the stage is being set for the unfolding of things that the Bible talks about so that really in a very short order, things could change. As, as nations become chaotic and we see even nations that were once very stable like France, Germany, European nations that were very stable, their money systems are breaking down, their political systems are breaking down, they have at times rioting and anarchy in their streets. We reflect that in our own nation at some level. And so there will be a world order brought by this 10 grouping of world governors, and out of that will surface the Antichrist. And then you say, well, how could he do that in so quickly? This is, what, this is actually what I meant to talk about. Was, I just got going on that other stuff. When I was in Malawi for the second time, it was the very beginning of the Obama administration. And one of the things that was different when I went to Malawi, Africa to minister at the beginning of the first term of the Obama administration, and I am no way suggesting that Obama is the Antichrist right now, okay? But what we saw was a change. Always before when we go, we come riding into a village way out in the bush of Africa in our Toyota truck or whatever with Yohani and Love. And Yohani's going to be here November 5th, by the way. Mark it down. Don't miss it. Um, and, and the young boys and girls of the village would come running after us because they wanted to see a white guy, a Zungu. And they would be hollering, Azungu, 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 Azungu. The second time I went, and it was the beginning of the Bush administration, they would look at us and say, Azungu, and then they would holler, Obama, 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 and they would come running. And I said, what are they talking about? I mean, he hadn't been president very long at all. And then we get out of the truck and we go around the corner of a hut, and here comes a little African kid with a t-shirt on with a full color print picture of Obama's face. So what is that all about? How could it be that, a, that an unknown senator, state senator from Illinois in a matter of months, could have his face on t-shirts in the bush of Malawi, Africa. And I thought to myself, we live in a changing world. How about the name Putin? Who cares about Putin? Who ever heard of Putin? About the time that Obama was running over here and coming, Putin swept through Russia. And his name became a worldwide name almost overnight. And so what you see is with technology and with the day and age in which we live, you can see that in three and a half years, an order of world government could take place. And then out of that order of world government, you could have one surface who becomes very popular. He becomes popular because he's a peacemaker and he makes peace in Israel and in Jerusalem. And then he commits the abomination of desolation. And then, I was going to say literally, but not literally, but then all hell breaks loose. And it's a horrible time. And that's the second mark. We're back in Matthew chapter 24 to begin our message for today. 
Matthew 24, look at verse 21. So the disciples are listening, and we're on letter B. Unimaginable trouble, he says. Unimaginable trouble. And why don't you write in C so that I feel better about how much progress we're making here? (laughs) Unsustainable horror. Unsustainable horror. So what does he say to the disciples? In verse 15, he said there's going to be the abomination of desolation. Watch out for that. In verse 21, he says, There will be great tribulation such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. In other words, they're so bad that human life could not survive. It's unsustainable horror. Letter C. But let's finish with letter B, this unimaginable trouble. This is a statement, I believe, in verse 21, of future expectation. Future expectation. There seems to be no comparison in all of history with the incredible, devastating events represented in the seven bowls of the wrath of God poured out shortly before Christ's return. Okay, so you can raise your hand right now and you can say, Pastor Van, I'm pretty sure what Jesus is really talking about happened in 70 AD. In fact, it was so horrible. There were earthquakes. There were surrounding armies. They trod people underfoot. They slaughtered people. In fact, they starved them out. They starved them, surrounded them, cut off their water and their food, and mothers literally ate their babies. It was horrible. But I want to tell you something. You can mark down from Attila the Hun all the way through World War II, Stalin. I've been watching uh, Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam, unspeakable horror that went on in the villages, in the war with kids and flesh melting off of them with napalm, and the horror of what went on in war and all of the wars, and how many million Jews did, were killed in Poland, how many million Jews were killed in Germany by Hitler, how many million Jews were killed in Russia by Stalin, millions and millions Some people say they killed more than Hitler did. And even of their own people, millions of their own people slaughtered them, starved them, buried them alive. Horrible, unspeakable things. And you look at that verse 21 and you say this great tribulation time, this horrible tribulation. And it was all fulfilled in 70 AD. The world has never seen anything like it since or will be. I don't agree with that one bit. I think you can document hundreds of horrible 70 AD events. And when Jesus says, such has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. Don't you get out of that that he's talking about a one-time only thing that is still future? I I think I get that. Maybe I'm reading into it with my eschatology model. So what we have here is we have Jesus telling his disciples the abomination of desolation hasn't taken place yet and we're going to have now a time of tribulation that you need to watch for. Now, has Christ returned yet? He hasn't returned yet. All this tribulation is going on and the second coming has not taken place. And so what do we have? We have a time of devastation that the Lord Jesus is talking about that is so horrible, let her see, that it is unsustainable or all human life would die. Where do we find something like that? I'll tell you where we find it. We find it in Revelation chapter 16, right before the coming of our Lord. And I think that's what he's referencing. So just think with me for a minute. Here's the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 16. The first couple chapters are about... The churches and the pastors of those churches. And then we get a visit to the throne room of heaven. And then in chapter 6, the judgments of God are unveiled in the book of Revelation. It's not easy to understand. The apostle John on the Isle of Patmos has a vision and he often uses the word like. I see like unto. And so what's he talking about? But here's an easy way to think about it. There are three sets of seven judgments from God in Revelation 6 to 16. Three sets of seven judgments. The first set of seven are known as the seal judgments, S-E-A-L, as in a scroll of parchment that is sealed. And there John sees, and he's grieving, because no one is worthy to break open the seals, but then one 
who is Jesus, comes, breaks them open. And those judgments, those seven sealed judgments, it's like they come and break open this parchment seal, unroll the parchment, and read what the judgment is. And they seem to be a broad description of the general kinds of judgments that are coming or that have been witnessed in the world even. And that's the judgments. Those seven tend to align with the first 14 verses of Matthew 24. They open, they break open the seal, and one of them is famine. Another one is earthquakes and pestilences. Another one is death and disease. Another one is martyrdom and the slaughter of the saints. And it seems to be speaking in broad terms. And so you have the first seven judgments, starting in Revelation 6. And then when he breaks open the seventh seal, out come the next seven. The seventh seal of the seal judgments breaks open seven trumpet judgments. You know, trumpets. Seven trumpet judgments. And they unfold and become more and more specific. And when the angel comes and blows the seventh trumpet... It, un- it announces seven bowl judgments. As in big bowls, we're going to read it. That's how we're going to end our service today, reading Revelation 16. Big bowls, picture this, in heaven, a countertop or a tabletop with huge bowls filled with the wrath of God. Just picturing it, I don't, it's not like that probably, but it's what he says. And angels come forward one at a time and pick up the bowls, And they spill the wrath of God down on the globe. And in Revelation 16, we're going to read it. You see, if you don't agree with me, that it fits what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24, 21, that it is going to be a time of terrible, terrible tribulation, unlike anything the world has ever seen. Will you go with me to Revelation 16? Revelation chapter 16. Follow along in your Bible. And then John says, I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, look, here it is, Revelation 16, 1, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. See the picture there? Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Verse 2, and so the first angel went and he poured out his bowl on the earth And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. So at the abomination of desolation, when the image of the beast is set up, the the false prophet is going to influence the world to take the mark of 666. It means you worship the beast and everybody with that mark. We'll talk later what that mark might be. Everybody with that mark, when the bowl judgments unfold and the first bowl of God's wrath is spilled out from the heavens onto the earth, it's going to be sores and boils. I ask you, is there any reason to believe that sores and boils aren't sores and boils? The second angel poured out his bowl, verse 3, into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, the fresh water. Verse 3 evidently is the salt water. Verse 4 is the fresh water. And they became blood. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever read in your Bible before where God used turning water into blood to judge people? Exodus, right? The ten, what do we call those? Plagues, the ten plagues. And he turns the river Nile into blood. How many of you believe that he literally turned it into blood? Is there any reason to believe that this is not literal blood, congealed blood like that of a corpse? Now let me ask you a question. If the saltwater bodies of the earth are turned into congealed blood like that of a corpse, how many hours, days, or weeks, I doubt months, can the world exist? Do you see why Jesus said if it wasn't cut off, In his sovereign timetable, he ends it, and he does it for the sake of the elect, the believers who are born again or Christ followers who are being persecuted. And he said, if if he didn't cut it off, human life would be unsustainable. That's not 70 AD. That's when the salt seas are turned into congealed blood like a corpse. And not only that, notice that God has an angel who's in charge of water. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers in spring. The fresh water becomes blood. And I heard the angel, verse 5, in charge of the waters. God has a lieutenant angel who's looking over the waters of the earth. 
And notice that his response, when the waters turn into congealed blood like that of a corpse, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. See, you want blood, God says? You want to pour the blood of my saints into the soil? I'll give you blood, and he turns the salt seas into blood, and he turns the fresh water springs into blood. Notice what happens. And I heard the altar saying, and the altar, and this is likely the martyred saints who are before the altar. Revelation says they're worshiping in the presence of Christ. They've been martyred in this tribulation period. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch the people with fire. And they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. The implication is, the implication is that they knew exactly the source of the scorching sun and the congealed blood water, and they refused to acknowledge he is God. You know any people like that? I do. The fifth angel, verse 10, poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people gnawed their tongues in anguish. And again, verse 11, they cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. There's going to be, for the battle of Armageddon, there's going to be this great approaching armies that are going to surround Israel and God dries up the river Euphrates and lets them come. We know the end of the story. God is going to come out of the sky on a great horse with a sword out of his mouth and destroy them all in one fell swoop. Is there any reason to believe that this isn't the Euphrates River and it dries up? I don't know. I think it is. And its water was dried up to prepare the way of the kings of the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. That's the unholy trinity, by the way. The dragon is a name for Satan. The beast is the Antichrist. And the false prophet is is his his religious leader of the day. And, and, And he influences people to take the mark 666 and worship the beast that is set up at the abomination of desolation. Three unclean spirits like frogs come out of them, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of the Almighty, of God the Almighty. So the political leaders of the earth are deceived by these spirits and they come together and they're surrounding Jerusalem, but the Lord hasn't come yet. Look what he says, verse 15, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, and he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at that place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of... Did we just read about flashes of lightning in Matthew 24? Don't be deceived, I haven't come yet, but when I come it's going to be like lightning in the sky... You will know it for sure. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake, greater than anything that happened in 70 AD. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Some think that is descriptive of a nuclear blast. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And the third time in this passage, it says, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. And Christ hasn't returned yet. You see why Jesus said he had to shut it off for the sake of the elect? No one would live. I believe it's an acceleration of events. I believe we're down to just literally days Before Christ's return, I don't think you can sustain human life for very long if all the water, fresh and salt of the earth is blood, congealed blood. Bottled water is only going to last so long. People can only live so long without self-destructing with the kind of agony of these sores. Some think that's radioactive sores. Mountains and islands are going to flee. 
You're going to find out in other passages a third of the earth is burned up. You can't, you can't sustain global life very long. Can I tell you that the greatest thing you can do to prepare for the coming of the Lord is run to the cross and become a born-again Christian and follow after King Jesus because he, we read the end, we know the end of the book, we haven't got there yet, but he's going to win. God wins, Satan loses, and everybody who's under the blood of the Lamb lives forever in heaven with Christ. Is this a time to go after our unsaved friends? Absolutely. Is this a time to care about what God cares about? Absolutely. I mean... I'm not making this stuff up. I'm just trying to understand what the Bible says. So there's letter A, B, and part of C. You have to come back for the rest of the story, as our friend Paul Harvey would say. Will you stand with me, please? Our heads bowed. Did you examine your heart today? We're going to talk more specifically, very specifically, about being ready for Christ's return in the rapture. If you don't get raptured out of here, which I believe is a very literal event, because you're born again, you will go into this tribulation period. If you do, the odds are very, very great that you would be deceived. We don't know when this is going to happen. It could happen very rapidly. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to turn to Christ. And I'm telling you, fear is a real good motivator to turn to Christ. But in your fear, will you repent of your sin? Acknowledge your sin before the Lord. Accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Become a, become a joy-filled Christ follower. What a remarkable book this Bible is, and we're recognizing that this is coming right from the mouth of our Lord Jesus. Will you get ready for these days? Maybe right now pray for somebody that you have a burden on your heart that doesn't know Christ. You're going to go after him. Love them to Christ. Share Christ with them. Father, we need your help to understand this stuff. I know we're barely scratching the surface. and It's really hard to understand exactly what's taking place, but we recognize that before our Lord returns, there will be an abomination of desolation and there will be great tribulation. We know that much. And that's enough. So would you help us to live ready? As your church, like a bride, looking for its groom, find us ready, Lord. Help us to walk in obedience. And as Paul exhorted Titus, that we would live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Help us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.